First Timothy chapter 1 and beginning to read in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, pray this morning that you would help us to understand your word. We pray that you would uh, help us to um, submit our lives to it, not just our minds, but our lives to it, so that our characters would be changed in accordance with what your truth says. There are many uh, different ways, Lord, competing with your way. Uh, We have our own way inside of ourselves. We have the way of the world. But we want to be the kind of people who look like we are part of your kingdom. We want to be the kind of people who look like we belong to your family. And so, Lord, as we spend time around your word, that's what we would ask that you would do through your word to change our character so that we look like sons and daughters. And so we submit to it now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So we begin our journey through the book of 1 Timothy, and uh, starting off here in uh, just the first section, the first uh, seven verses. And Paul, um, we can determine right from the outset that Paul's not messing around. He wants to get right to the heart of the matter. He establishes himself as an apostle right there in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, so he's establishing himself as an authoritative apostle. But then he gets right into the heart of the matter and he spells it out to Timothy, the kinds of things that he's supposed to do now in Ephesus. We pick this up in verse 3 and 4. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, you remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. He tells them, Timothy, you need to stop the kind of teaching that's going on in Ephesus. It's not helpful to the church. And you're my key instrument to making sure this happens. (coughs) Now, we talked about this last week. This really came really as no surprise to Paul. Because he prophesied back in Acts chapter 20 that this was going to happen in Ephesus. Remember, he grabbed the elders together at Miletus and he told them, He said, look, there's going to be false teachers who are going to come in amongst yourselves. And not men from outside. Men from within the church who are going to start teaching strange things. And you be on your guard for the flock is what he told them. So apparently it's now happened. This has happened in the church. But instead of taking care of the problem, the problem seemed to now be overwhelming the church. Now, it's easy... It's easier, rather, when opposition comes from outside of the church. 
But when opposition comes from inside of the church, when false teaching comes from inside of the church, it's a lot more difficult to deal with. Here's why. These people have been around the church for a period of time. They've established themselves. And then when they start changing things from the pulpit after they've already established themselves and, and gained credibility, it's the kind of thing where we're more apt or people are more apt to listen to and to fall prey to. And this is exactly what was happening in Ephesus. More and more people in Ephesus in the church, they were getting sucked into this stuff. And as a result, the faith of the church in Ephesus was in a complete downward spiral. If you just want to follow along with me, different verses in the whole book of 1 Timothy. Uh, verse 6, some men straying from these things have turned aside. Look down in verse 19. Keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected, rejected and suffered shipwrecked in regards to their faith. People have shipwrecked their faith. Down in chapter 4 and verse 1, the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times people will fall away from the faith. Chapter 5 and verse 15, some have already turned aside and followed Satan. And chapter 6 and verse 10, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith. People were getting confused about what faith is really all about. And these teachers, these false teachers, were leading the way in Ephesus. Timothy was to put a stop to it. The Christian church in Ephesus was in crisis, and Timothy was Paul's key instrument to put a stop to it. So what exactly was Timothy supposed to confront? Verses 3 and 4 begins to spell this out, the kinds of things that Timothy was supposed to confront. And he talks about these myths and endless genealogies that these guys were promoting. Now, we don't know what these were uh, specifically because Paul doesn't spell it out for us. And maybe it could, be taking, it could be taken one of two ways, especially endless genealogies. Maybe it was endless conversations about genealogies. Or maybe it was talking about genealogical trees that seemed to be endless. How could genealogy, uh, genealogy uh, appear to be endless? Well, it could become this if we understand that our existence maybe happened uh, before we were born. It happened in some kind of spirit existence before. The Mormons, uh, of course, promote this. Brigham Young of the Mormon faith taught that each person had a pre-spirit intelligence whereby at birth this spirit entered a physical body and now was born on the earth. Every person then is a, a son or daughter of the Father. And in this spirit world, there are these spirits which were first begotten and brought forth and they live with their parents for ages before they actually come here and get put into a human body. The idea then is that there were a bunch of spirits that lived together with their parents up in the spirit realm in heaven before they are brought down to this physical body here on the earth. Now apparently this kind of an idea uh, actually existed in ancient Greece, Greek religious thought. So this could have been what was going on. In ancient Greek uh, thought, uh, genealogies could be traced back to the angels and to the spirits in pre-existing humans dwelling with the angels. Endless genealogies could have been created around this idea, but again, we don't know for certain. Another possibility is that it was more like endless conversations about genealogies and myths that came out of them. 
It's probable that these teachers, uh, who wanted to be teachers of the law, were creating myths based on genealogical Jewish accounts of the Old Testament. Right, they wanted to be teachers of the law, so they go back through the law, see these genealogical accounts, and make up some kind of myth as a result. Titus 1.14 talks about Jewish myths, and so maybe these guys were endorsing some kind of teachings surrounding some of the minor guys, some of the minor people in these genealogical trees as we find them in the Old Testament. If they were to create some kind of a myth surrounding this genealogical tree, maybe it could go something like this. You take a truthful character from the Bible, you first of all make some truthful observations about that character, but then you finish it off with some kind of mythological understanding about what they said or about what they did, which then gives rise to speculation about what might be coming for us or about how we might need to live now. Maybe a Jewish myth based on something like this could go like Methuselah. Let's take Methuselah. A man listed in the Old Testament in the genealogical tree that could be traced all the way back to Adam. The oldest guy, the oldest guy to let ever live on this planet was Methuselah. Anybody know how old he was? 969. You're all very close. It's just trivia stuff. Don't, anybody who got that answer, don't be impressed by it. It's just, it's just trivia stuff. But 969 years. We're not talking a century. We're talking about 10 of them. This guy lived an incredibly long life. Now his dad was Enoch. Anybody know what happened to that guy? Swept up. He never died. Enoch never died. He was so godly that God just took him up into heaven. This is all in the Bible. Now here's a key reason, and I'm going to get into some speculation. I need to tell you this because I don't want you ever to believe that I'm promoting this stuff. But I'm just going to go off on some kind of myth here now. Here's a key reason why Enoch uh, was taken by God and why Methuselah lived so long. His dad, <clears throat> Methuselah's dad, Enoch, he passed on a godly diet that was, obtained by, that was obtained from God himself, given by God himself. Now I know that there's diets out there, there's all these fads, and this is how are you going to get better and healthier and all this kind of stuff. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a diet that came from God himself. This is why Methuselah lived so long. This is why Enoch was taken by God. They were so godly, and part of their godliness had to do with their godly diet. You see, Enoch and his son Methuselah, they lived uh, north of the Persian Gulf, where God told them what kinds of food they needed to eat and the kinds of foods they should not. And those who today can trace their genealogical record back to Methuselah still know of this godly diet. And they live by it, and as a result, they actually live longer lives. But this diet's not out of reach for you and I. I've got access to it. You see, God wants us all to live godly lives, and a part of that is to live a godly life in terms of the way that you eat. And the Methuselah diet is something that God would have for you. You see, there are certain kinds of food that godly people will eat. There are certain kinds of food that godly people will not eat. This is the way it was in the days of Enoch, and Methuselah, and his genealogical tree, and it's here for you today as well. This is a bunch of garbage, obviously. Oh, you like that? <laughs> How much? How much? <laughs> uh, well, in 
Timothy actually, uh, something like this actually was being promoted. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, godliness was attached to not eating, eating certain kinds of foods. You don't eat these certain kinds of foods if you're really godly. I don't know if it's attached to some kind of Methuselah diet, but that was some of the teaching that was going on in Ephesus. And these myths, they all ended up in speculation, according to verse 4, and fruitless discussion. And of course they did, because they're not founded on the Bible. But somehow, these teachings were gaining uh, traction in the church. And of course they did, because they were not founded on the Bible, but they're extremely attractive. They're attractive because you don't have to change your character. You don't have to change your the way that you live in order to embrace something like this, in terms of your character. But Paul says, this has nothing to do with the Christian message. And he spells out what the Christian message is in verse 5. The goal of our instruction is love. How boring is that? Paul says, it's love. The goal of our instruction is love. From a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. William Mounts, in his commentary on uh, 1 Timothy, puts it this way. In Ephesus, as in Corinth, the heresy manifested itself in the absence of of love. See, Christian love, Paul says here, comes from a pure heart. And a pure heart, from Proverbs 20 and verse 9, is something that has been cleansed from sin. In this sense, a pure heart is one that has dealt with all their sin before God. Christian love also comes from a clear conscience. And Romans 2 speaks about a conscience that will either commend us or accuse us. And a good conscience, then, would have no internal accusation, free from any internal guilt. And finally, Christian love comes from a sincere faith. And as we know from Hebrews chapter 11, faith is about the way that you walk in life. Moses, by faith, did this. Abraham, by faith, did this. Sarah, by faith, did this. The Israelites, by faith, did this. It's all about the way they were living out their faith. And of course, as James 2 would say, faith without works is dead. A sincere faith, then, is one that is lived out in accordance with the teachings of God. Now, to say that the essence of the Christian teaching is love is to say exactly what Jesus himself said. Not just what Paul said, but exactly what Jesus said. We've talked about this before. <coughs> Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37, Jesus says this. You take the whole law, all of it, and you put it together and you can sum it up in these two commands. Love God with everything you have and love your neighbors yourself. Jesus himself said it's all about love. And Paul himself here is saying the goal of our instruction is all about love. But this is what makes every human being tick. What makes us tick on this planet? It's love. It's not about how wealthy you are. It's not really about how healthy you are, but whether or not you're surrounded in love. Secular people understand this too. Jim, Jim, Jim Carrey just said this last week. He wishes that everybody could be famous and rich so they could see it's not the answer. We all know this. Maybe some of us don't know it because we're not as wealthy as some of these others, but if you get to that place, it's void of meaning. We all know that our lives, we thrive on this planet based on whether or not we are surrounded by love. And the root problem of the heresy at Ephesus, it had nothing to do with love. That's why Paul has to start with a contrast in verse 5. 
but the goal of our instruction. It's not the goal of their instruction, but the goal of our instruction, which is the goal of all Christian instruction, will always end in Christian love. These guys were all about speculations and fruitless discussions and the twisting of the law. You see, in verse 7, these guys wanted to be teachers of the law. They wanted that badge attached to them. These guys were teachers of the law. But they were not using the law <clears throat> the way it was intended. Their teaching didn't result in love. So if it's not resulting in love and they're using the Old Testament, how could they be using the Old Testament and not end up in speaking about love? Well, as already suggested, maybe there was some genealogical myths in their teaching. There were for sure. We don't know exactly what they taught. But I would also suggest that there was probably some kind of Old Testament teaching that emphasized sign-based faith. Sign-based faith. Because you can go to the Old Testament law and pick up sign-based faith, emphasize that, and promote it to other people. This kind of false gospel was the main competition in the other churches, churches like Galatia and Coloss. And I would suggest it was also here in Ephesus. What is sign-based faith really talking about? Remember in Genesis chapter 17, God says this, I want every male to be circumcised. Why? Because that makes you godly? No, it's an outward sign that you are proud to be connected to God. Exodus chapter 31, the observance of the Sabbath was a sign. It's a sign that says that you are proud to be connected to God, so I want you to live in this particular way, surrounding your day on the Sabbath, as a sign that you are proud to be connected to me. And then, of course, there were Jewish feasts. And in these Jewish feasts, all the males, the Jewish males, had to appear before God at his appointed location and celebrate these feasts. Now, this kind of teaching is attractive because of this. You don't have to change your character. You emphasize the minor things of the Old Testament law, things that are sign-based, not character-based. Emphasize those things, and they're extremely attractive because nobody has to change. You just got to follow these things. It's the appearance of being godly, <clears throat> but when it's evaluated, it's empty, it's void. It's void because the goal of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as Paul puts it here, is always love. It always is. <clears throat> now you might be thinking, okay, Dan, well this doesn't really apply to our church because I don't think many of us are talking about genealogical myths based on Old Testament characters. This would also be true. But I would suggest there's a principle going on here. The principle is this. Teachings that are out there in the Christian church that do not have their main central goal of love. Here's what I mean. Any teaching, <coughs> any teaching from any church that does not have godly character fixated on love as its central message ought to be held in suspect. I'll say it again. Any teaching out there from any church that does not have godly character fixated on love as their central message ought to be held in suspect, and as Timothy's instructed here, it ought to be challenged. Let me give you some examples that are out there. A church whose central message is universal acceptance of all people <clears throat> with very little said about character change. Jesus said repent. 
But there's churches out there who give a universal acceptance. Everybody is welcome here. Now, of course, everybody's welcome here as well. But sometimes this message that everybody is welcome has very little to do with character change. And yet Jesus says, repent. And we are to judge those who are inside the church. But when this becomes your central message, that it's a, a universal acceptance regardless of character, you lose, you lose track of what um, character change underneath Jesus Christ really looks like. And you know churches like that. Or a church whose central theme surrounds the notion of getting rid of dark spirits that are, present, that are preventing you from moving on with God. We need to get rid of these dark spirits that are preventing you from moving on with God. So come and we'll get rid of these spirits. It's not based on godly character. It's based on the spirit world. Why is that attractive? Because you don't have to change your character. It's not your fault. It's these spirits that are out there. Or a church whose main attraction is signs and wonders. Come to this church and you will see the power of God like you've never seen before. This is not a message that is centralized on love, but on power and the supernatural. Or a church whose central message is prosperity. Come to this church. Embrace the message. And you will see your wealth increase. The central message is prosperity. Not character transformation into the likeness of God's love. And I thought of many more that I've not included on here. I'm not talking about the full neglect of some of these themes. I, I'm not saying that some of those themes are not in the Bible. In some way, shape, or form. But when they become the priority goal, love gets put on the shelf, and as a result, hypocrisy enters into the church, and the faith gets completely skewed. Again, why are these so attractive to us? They're so attractive to people because you don't have to change. There's churches, of course, just based on ceremony. You don't have to change your character if it's based on ceremony. Just come. Be part of the ceremony and you're good to go. See, they have the appearance of godliness. They have the appearance that there's something godly going on there. But Paul says the central theme of our message, the absolute end goal of what we preach in Christianity is love. Jesus said the exact same thing. Now, the problem is this, is that love isn't all that flashy, is it? It's not all that flashy. But I can tell you this, people of the world who don't have love in their lives, and they come and they meet Christians, <coughs> genuine sold-out Christians, and they see their radical transformation in character, I can tell you that's extremely attractive. And that's exactly what the church is supposed to be. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to God. Somehow the world is to look in on the church and see this radical transformed uh, people of God who live in this self-sacrificial loving way on a consistent basis. There's warmth, there's acceptance, there's love everywhere and it becomes attractive. You want to have a conversation with somebody, have a conversation with Jackson. Jackson and I were just talking about this last week. That's exactly what he's attracted to in the Christians he's found. That's what attracted him to Christianity. That's what's supposed to be the central theme of Christianity. The goal of our instruction is love. And we're not talking about airy-fairy love. We're not talking about feelings. We're not talking about Hollywood love. We're talking about love, as Paul puts it here, from a pure heart, with good conscience, 
and a sincere, and a sincere faith. This is always, always has been and always will be the central message of Christianity. Now I've got a few lessons that I want to put up behind me here. <clears throat> and I only have two this morning. First of all, the Christian teaching on love, as we find it in 1 Timothy 1, should be 5, they're not 15. I can make that quick edit. It's the heresy that would have happened, right? Thanks for laughing, Mike. Dad, I'm all at the beginning now. These are all my notes, in case anybody's wondering what the dad's notes actually look like. Here we go, and boom, there it is. <laughs> the Christian teaching on love, 1 Timothy 1.5, is centered on godly character. It always is. Christian teaching on love is centered on godly character from a pure heart. It's dealt with sin from a good conscience. It's, it's free from internal accusation and a sincere faith that it's expressed in one's daily walk. That is the central message of Christianity. I get it. It's not all that flashy. It doesn't seem all that flashy. But that's exactly what makes human beings tick. And it's because God himself is defined as love. God is love. That is this. That is 1 John 4, 8. That is the definition of God. And if his definition is love you would expect that when he would create human beings, that this would be the central thing we would long for. This would be the central thing that would make us tick as it is with God. And then secondly, any church leaders that do not teach love as their goal ought to be held in suspect. Any church leaders that do not teach love as their goal ought to be held in suspect. Now I'm not talking about that their goal is you say that. I'm not talking about talking about it. I'm talking about that actually is what's central in their message. Again, I know, I get it. It's not all that flashy. But character transformation, when you're living it out there, it's what we long for. It's why this place is so safe. It's why when I come here on Sunday morning, I'm not thinking about how somebody's going to ridicule me. I'm not thinking about how somebody's going to run me over the coals. I don't expect that, and I never receive it here. Now, some of you are in tough work environments. Um, I don't know the different places you're, you're in. I'm, some of you are in tough neighborhoods. Some of you have tough family units, and you get bombarded, and you get hit by it over and over again. When you come here, when you come here, if genuine Christianity is really here, then this is a safe place. It's a place where love is expressed. And it ought not to be just here. That's why Matthew 5, 16 is so important. Let your light so shine out there that they may see your good deeds and give glory to God. That they see the way that you are functioning and operating and saying, that looks different and that's not what I'm accustomed to. Don't you have some kind of sidebar thing you're expecting? I get it, you're doing this thing, but don't, aren't you expecting something back in return? Christians don't. We love because God loved us first. That's why we love. Not because of anything to begin with. God loved us. Not because of anything we did. 
and we love other people the exact same way. Not because we're in some kind of manipulation, not because we're expecting something back. It's just the way that transformed, sold out, godly people live.